Scott, he just walk out. Just hit that LS button right beside you. It's got LS. Thank you. And the, the P. Right beside it. Thank you. <clears throat> Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that we will revel in truth. Pray that in these next few minutes that we will have all our consumer desires, all the things that we want from you, all the things that we feel like we just so absolutely need, maybe many of the reasons why we're even here this morning or why we're engaging the people of God. I pray that we can put all that aside and just revel in your design and your plan and how you've interacted with your creation over the ages. Lord, I pray that in these next few minutes that this people, this ordinary people, will gather and celebrate an extraordinary covenant. That We will enjoy our Lord, crucified and risen. I pray that we'll find purchase that invades Monday and Thursday and bedroom and kitchen and cubicle and neighborhood. And that it will begin at the heart where your people gather And are amazed at your grace and your mercy and your design. Lord, I pray for a clarity that I don't own. I pray for an attentiveness that people in this room don't have. A divine attentiveness, a gripping attentiveness that comes from the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you will be enjoyed in these next few minutes. We turn this wonderful special day over to you for your glory. Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have um, I've been a Christian since I can remember. I believe I began the journey at the age of six, grew up in a Christian home. And I can tell you that if, if there was ever one thing that could induce yawning, it was the word covenant. The minute someone would share covenant in a Bible study or in a sermon, that's when the yawning began. Because certainly it doesn't have anything to do with practical living, God's people. Certainly it doesn't have anything to do with my little situation, or at least I expected. And it was one thing that could certainly make me sleepy. And this morning, what I want to do in these next few minutes is I want us to engage this yawn-inducing word, covenant. And I want you to join me in being arrested with covenant and arrested with how God has interacted with his people and with creation over the ages. Kids, little ones in here, man, I know that for you this may be a real challenge to sit still for a while. Yes, I even heard a yes. Man. I just encourage you for the sake of your mommies and daddies, sit quietly, sit still, and try with everything in you to engage these truths. This morning you're going to hear some new words. You may even hear what could lean on in the direction of almost a new language. And I know, too, another thing that induced yawning for me was words that were unfamiliar, words that seemed kind of big and academic and what I realize now that is that words are special and necessary. If you go down to a dealership in Dallas or Rockwall and you buy yourself a new car, you need a place to park your new car. 
And that's all new words are. You've gleaned a new truth about the kingdom. And you need a place to park it. So you park it at a new word. So don't be afraid of new words. Don't be simple and ignorant and stupid. The people of God are hungry. The people of God want a place to park these new truths. They want to engage these rich revelations of God's plan and His design. This morning, we're going to begin the message. Before we even look at the Word, we're going to begin the message with kind of an introduction of the way man has designed God. Now, if you're hearing that, you're thinking, hopefully, right off the bat, we're not talking about the one true God, because the one true God is not designed or derived by man. But man, indeed, has derived and designed God. And there are a couple of sorts of gods that we like. We like the God that's either very far away or the God that's very near. Let's talk about the very near God first. This God is the God that's in creation. Now, I'm putting a little G in front of this God, so I hope you know I'm not talking about our God, the one true God. I'm talking about the false gods that man make up. And this God is in creation. These are the gods that would be attributed to what's called pantheism, where God's in everything. He's in all creation. He's around us in everything. He's in the cow in the backyard in the back 40. He's in the sun. He's in the moon. This is pantheism. The Greeks and Romans were great at this picture of God. They had a God for everything. In fact, when Paul preached at the Areopagus, this place that was surrounded by these statues to all these gods, there was even a statue for the unknown God just to cover any gods they might have missed. There's a God for everything. That's pantheism. Worship the sun. Worship the moon. Worship a bush. Worship the cow grazing in the back 40. These gods in pantheism are immersed and part of creation. And as part of creation, these gods are part of man. If you've heard somebody say, well, we all have a spark of divinity within us, that's what they're saying. That comes from a pantheistic view that says, well, God's in all of us. That comes from pantheism. And in that mindset, the lines between God and creation are very blurry or even non-existent because God's in everything, from the cow in the back 40 to even in us with a little bitty spark. And ultimately in this design, this pantheistic design that man has made up, you've got to appreciate that ultimately man is God in that design. Since there's a spark of divinity in us, then we can achieve godness. Ultimately, man is God, or man can become God, so ultimately us and God are of the same essence. Since God's in creation, and since we're creatures. Again, the Greeks did a great job of giving a picture of this. The Greeks and the Romans, all these, if you studied mythology at all, you know all these gods that they made up. They're especially manlike, for they commit a murder, they commit adultery. The, the worst that's in us, they saw in their gods. And that's what happens when there's no lines between God and man. And we think there's a spark of divinity in man that these lines blur or even become non-existent. Now, the totem pole is a great picture of what I'm talking about. I found this thing in the woods behind the Ott's house. 
It was crazy. I was just walking around back there, and there it was. I knew the odds had problems, but this confirmed it. There it was. Jeff told me, he said, you better not say that. He said, you tell them that you found the pole back there, but it wasn't painted. I said, well, it wasn't painted like that. It had other faces on it and stuff. But this totem pole is an image, an illustration of what I'm talking about, where man or God is in creation and those lines are blurred. Imagine this pole being, this, this pole being a continuum of existence, a continuum of essence, essentially, with God at the top. See, he's got a little green crown on, copper, I guess. But God's on the top, and then down in the center, this is a picture of man. And then down here is a picture of critters with a frog face. A lot of totem poles, they have the winged creature on top. That's their picture of God. And then down even on the bottom, they have an image of demons. That is this continuum of existence and this continuum of essence that is the picture of pantheism. And really what is the situation there is that we're a little more refined than the critters, but we're not quite as divine as the God in this design. And we can really, essentially move either direction, but we're all of the same essence. We're all on the same pole. Now, you might think I'm talking about something that's really primitive. You know, totem poles are primitive. You might be thinking I'm talking about ancient worship, tribal worship, or maybe the Indians, American Indians sort of worship. This exists in contemporary belief right now. For the Mormons, if you studied the Mormons, you have some Knowledge of what the Mormons believe. The Mormons believe that if you're good enough right here, then eventually you'll become one of these and you'll inherit your own earth. And you'll populate that own earth, your own earth, with all creation. Another way it exists is if you take this totem pole and you lay it down. That's a picture of evolution. The evolutionist might say there is no God, but the evolutionist believes what's in this pole. For if you lay it down, then we're just a slimy critter at the end of the pole that somehow migrates along to actually be a frog someday. And then if we migrate even further, then we become a man. And who's, who knows what's next as we migrate down the continuum of evolution. You might think this primitive, but this is all around us. There's a spark of divinity in all of us, right? At least that's what we believe. We like this view of God. This is a near and dear view of God to humanity. We like this view. Is the reason we like it is because it, it doesn't declare us bankrupt. It doesn't declare us hopeless and helpless. For if there's a spark of divinity in all of us, then there's a potential to be here. <laughs> if we can just legislate or educate well enough, then maybe we can move up here and we'll get our own little green crown. Because there's a spark of divinity in all of us and there's the potential. And then maybe if we educate and legislate enough, then we can achieve utopia. And then who gets the praise then? We get the praise. Man did it. We can do anything when we set our mind to it. We can achieve anything with enough education and enough legislation. We can make a name for ourselves and we can ultimately achieve our own glory. 
So the very close God or gods of pantheism are cool for natural man. The natural man loves this sort of design with a very close God. But what you've got to appreciate is that the God of pantheism is too close to be taken seriously. He's grazing in the back 40. Now, the other sort of God. If that's the very close God, there's a little spark of it in all of us. The other view on God is that God is very, very distant. You may have heard the the term that people used before, the term transcendent. Transcendent is a good word. This is a misunderstanding of the word transcendent that says that God is very distant. This is the God of deism. If the first was the God of pantheism, where God's in everything, this is deism, where God is in nothing. And God creates And then he just winds it up like a clock. And then he just leaves it to tick until, I don't know, the uh, ozone layer burns through or something. We all blow up. Meteor hits us. He spins us like a top. But then he takes takes off and just leaves it alone. This sort of God, the God of deism... It's not going to interfere with the activities of creation or intervene in creation in any way. And he's certainly not going to judge creation either. This sort of God, this deism God, is so transcendent, misunderstood transcendent, distant, that he just doesn't even care. This sort of God we like also because this sort of God is impersonal and he has no voice, so man is at the center of the story. And since this sort of God is so impersonal and so distant and he has no voice, then man can come up with whatever we want for truth. We design truth. We make it up. And we like that God. The God of deism is mute. And man becomes the God and truth is whatever we want it to be. The totem pole is kind of useful in this illustration also. I haven't shown you yet actually what I'm talking about, but... In the picture of the totem pole, it would be like this, that this God comes and he creates, but then this God goes on on vacation. He goes to Hawaii, and he even goes suntanning. So he's suntanning in Hawaii. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking. Meanwhile, the top is spinning, and that God over there doesn't care a thing in the world about what's going here with you and me and the rest of creation. The God of pantheism is too close to be taken seriously. The God of deism is too distant to be taken seriously. Who cares? The sucker's over sitting over in Hawaii tanning. He's not involved in what's going on here. So the natural man loves this design too because we can make up our own truth. There's a third picture that really has nothing to do with this sermon, but since we're talking about these different views of God, I'm going to take just a moment to point it out. This is the view that says that there is no God. These are the ones that say that there just absolutely is no creator. All there is is this stuff. And this stuff, although complex and incredible, there's no designer behind it. It would be like walking through the woods and looking down, maybe behind the Ott's house, you walk past the totem pole, And maybe look down and you see a clock, a watch, or a pocket watch laying on the ground. 
And this pocket watch is complex. This pocket watch is gold. This pocket watch is ticking and marking off time perfectly. And you look at that incredibly complex ticking watch and you go, huh, that just happened there. You say, nobody made that. Nobody designed that and nobody dropped it there. There's no intelligent design behind that. It just happened. I mean, I want to be gentle and respect with those who have that viewpoint. But it's ironic to me that those who have that viewpoint will say that we don't want to check our brain at the door and just surrender to this brainless faith. Yet, when I'm really thinking about what you're saying, thats I'm sorry, that's quite brainless. And it's quite faithful. You having faith in something. It's faith ultimately in nothing. A mindless faith. But the... Views I want to talk about today are the first, where God is close and God is far away. And then I want to talk about our God. Let's talk about our God. Most religions of the world have landed on either the very distant God, the God of deism, or the God of pantheism, the very close God. But our God is different and distinct Unlike the gods of pantheism, our God is not on the pole. (laughs) Unlike the God of pantheism, our God is not on the pole. Thankfully, he's not just a higher form of us that could stumble to adultery or murder or vice at any moment. (laughs) Oh, I'm thankful for that God. Thankfully, our God is not on the pole. Thankfully, our God is not grazing in the back 40. Nasty, cud-chewing rascal. (laughs) Thankfully, that's not our God back there. And the reason this is not our God, and the reason we know that our God is different, is because our God made us from nothing. The reason our God is not on the pole is because He spoke us into existence from nothingness. You've got to appreciate that our God is just totally different from these other views is because He spoke it into existence from absolute nothingness. He created with his spoken word the gentle zephyr. You know what a zephyr is? It's a gentle breeze. He spoke into existence the huge galaxy, spoken from nothing. He's not on the pole. He spoke into existence the distant quasar. He spoke into existence the moons, the suns, the atmosphere, the sand, the sea, the rocks. His very words created these things from nothing. We weren't created from his essence. We may be created in his image, but we are not of his essence. He's not on our pole. He created us from nothing. Our God is distinct. That's what true transcendence means. He's distinct and altogether different. And also, our God is not like the God of deism because he's not distant and he's not on vacation. Instead, he's gentle and forgiving and involved. Instead, he's long-suffering and just and holy and involved. Instead, he's kind and benevolent. He's not on vacation tanning in Hawaii. He's kind and benevolent and he, what is he? He's involved. Our God, our one true God, is personal. Our one true God is transcendent 
and distinct, yet he is involved. And the interesting thing, why I went through all this, why I dug around behind the Ott's house to find this, why we spent this period of time here this morning is because I want you to know that how this transcendent God that's not on a pole, that can't even be represented, I want to throw that one outside, but I don't want to damage it because I want to keep it for future use. Because <laughs> our God can't even be represented. Our God is transcendent. And here's the thing that I want you to appreciate. Is the way that this God interacts with us is through this thing that used to induce yawns for me called covenant. This thing that I used to think, oh man, I'm going to sleep. I'm now finding is sublime. This thing is now incredible. This thing called covenant. So we're going to spend the next few minutes looking at the contours of covenant. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Okay, let me give you kind of a map of where we're going in the next few minutes because I want you to go on the journey with me. I told Scott, I said, man, this is going to be a beef eater sermon. If somebody's lazy, tired, or simple, they're going to be going, man, when's lunch? But if somebody is hungry and willing and engaged, then they're going to walk away well-fed and well-nourished. But you got to engage. I'm going to give you a map because I want you to go on this journey with me. We're going to look at five covenants. There are six major covenants that I identified, but we're going to look at just five of them. The first four we're going to look at, and then the last one we're going to savor. Okay, here's the first one. It starts in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. That's at the front of your Bible. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, first of all, what I want to do as we go on this little journey, looking at these covenants, is I want us to engage the things that they have in common. I want you to see the similarities about the way God has operated with His people. You're going to see His redemptive pattern. So then when we see it in the last covenant that we savor together, you'll go, well, yeah, there He is. He's operated that way over the ages including the very beginning. And one thing that's true of covenant for all of them is that God initiates covenant. Covenant is different from contract. Some of y'all been in contract before, like you got a contract on a house. You know, contract is a two-way thing, and it's even. You know, both parties have to follow through on their end of the job, their end of the commitment for it to be completed. That's that's. Uh, uh, contract. But covenant is really lopsided. <laughs> covenant doesn't work that way. There's a covenantor, and then there's a benefactor of the covenant. And our God is the covenanter in every case. He's driving. He's the initiator. He's the one that engages us in covenant. We don't make a deal with God. He engages us. He did it here with complete nothingness and he speaks it all into existence let's look at that god said let there be light and there was light and verse six god said let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters let it separate the waters from the waters and god made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse and god said it and guess what it was so covenanter in the driving seat And God said, verse 9, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it 
was so. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things. So I guess he's not in the cow. He created the cow. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God initiates the covenant. God is behind the verbs, every verb that we've read so far. God said, God spoke. God saw and there was. God is the, the covenantor that's driving this whole thing. Something else that's true of every covenant is that God speaks light into darkness. He speaks light into darkness and creates light. He creates the expanse of the waters. He creates vegetation, trees, lights in the heavens, swarms and swarms of creatures, livestock, creeping things. And then on the sixth day, He creates man. Verse 26 says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image, not of his own essence, of his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant. And it was so. Chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord gives some more details on this creation of man. It says, the Lord took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree. Pay attention, there's commandment. You may eat from every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the first covenant that we've just read, and it's got some things in common that you'll see in others. First of all, he initiates his covenant. Secondly, he speaks light into darkness. Third, in this case, he creates and he names the mediator. The mediator in this case is our boy, our great, 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 super great granddaddy, Adam. He creates him and names him, and he commands him. That's true of every covenant. He commands him with what's called the cultural mandate to be fruitful and multiply. 
And then he also gives them some boundaries. Don't eat from that tree right there. Eat from any tree you want, but don't eat from that one. There's commandment as part of covenant. And he promises blessings, the working and keeping of the garden, complete with this new addition that he's going to have here in a little bit named Eve. Blessings. But then he also promises curses. There will be death if you eat from that tree. Something else that's true of covenant that we're going to see in every one of them is you're going to see sacrifice. And there's sacrifice in this covenant. For when Adam and Eve fell and when they sinned, the first sacrifice took place where God killed an innocent. Sound familiar? Killed an innocent to take the skin and cover the guilty. Looking for Christ in the OT? There he is. He killed an innocent to cover the guilty. And then last, there's a sign. Genesis chapter 1, verse 14. I just read it, but I want to show it, show it to you again because it's going to come up later. It says, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons. In every covenant, there's a sign. And the sign in this creative covenant, this Adamic. Remember, I told you there's going to be some places you'll need to park. You can park it right there, the Adamic covenant. It might be new, but don't be afraid of that. That you can park this thing there to understand that what happened, <laughs> that I lost my place in my notes, <laughs> is there's a sign. And in this case, the sign is that the lights in the heavens. Psalm chapter 19, it's a psalm that I learned with my family. It says, The heavens above declare the glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech, night to night reveals knowledge. And all we have to do is to look up to be reminded of the sign of this incredible covenant of creation where God created Adam and created man. That's the first covenant. Here's the second. Turn to Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. <clears throat> this is called the Noahic covenant, or you can call it Noahic covenant, just wherever you want to park. Either one of those places will be fine. I'm going to call it Noahic covenant. Genesis chapter 6, verse 18. God says, I will establish my covenant with you. He's speaking to Noah. And here's what that covenant looked like. Turn over to chapter 8, verse 20. This is after Noah and his family were on the ark during the flood. The water subsides. The first thing Noah does when he gets off the ark. Watch this. Noah built an ark to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they're delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave the, you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life in it, that is, its blood. 
And for your lifeblood, I will require reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man, from his fellow man. I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth that's with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. I don't know if you really tuned into the ingredients of covenant yet, but I'm going to draw them out for you in that picture that we've just read, the Noah covenant. God initiates covenant. The covenanter is driving. God goes to Noah. God tells Noah what to do. Noah doesn't have his own idea about, hey, I think I ought to make an ark. I think it's going to rain. God is in the driver's seat. God initiates covenant. God speaks into the darkness of the wickedness of mankind. He speaks light into darkness. He mediates the covenant through a man named Noah. The first one was through a man named Adam. This one's through a man named Noah. He commands. There's commandment as part of every covenant. He says, build an ark. Gather the critters. And he also gives them yet again the cultural mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. And he promises blessings. You're going to have dominion over creation and all creatures. They'll be your very food, Noah. And then there's sacrifice. Really, the whole story is one big sacrifice. All of humanity and all creation becomes this flood sacrifice. And then the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the ark, what does he do? He sacrifices. And then last, of course, there's sign. He puts a bow in the sky. You know, we've learned the term rainbow. We may not realize that what that is. That's just like a bow, like a bow and arrow sort of bow. And that bow is not oriented at earth and taut. It's relaxed and, or, and oriented away from creation. It's a sign, a reminder that God is not going to send a flood again. And it's a sign that we should embrace enjoying this as a sign, this covenant that he will not flood the entire earth again. That was the second covenant. Our distinct, transcendent, properly transcendent God is involved in creation. Yet thankfully, since all of creation is wicked, he's outside of creation. Thankfully. Now the third covenant. Turn to Genesis chapter 15. Okay, here's your little mid-sermon coaching. Man, I know some of y'all can watch TV for three or four hours a night. (laughs) So don't get restless halfway through something that's eternal that matters. If you're starting to to wander and think about other things, man, ask the Lord, Lord, re-engage me in something that matters. 
I promise I'm, I'm going to continue on if you do. I'm going to continue on whether you do or not. But I'm asking you to go on the journey with me. Genesis chapter 15. This is called the Abrahamic Covenant. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. (laughs) Who's he? Man, he's the guy that's going to be the heir of my house if something doesn't happen. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household, Eliezer, will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Who's speaking? God's initiating. God's the covenanter. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars. You Remember the sign of the first covenant? The skies above declare the glory of God. Day to day declares his glory. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Look up, Abram. You're going to see who's on the throne. Look up and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He reckoned him righteous. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? (laughs) I'm old and my wife is barren. How's that possibly going to work, God? And God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid half each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Look at chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. 
And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. God initiates covenant. God speaks. God calls. God is the covenanter. He is driving. And God speaks into darkness. The darkness of Abram coming from a moon-worshiping family. The darkness of him being old as dirt. The darkness of his wife being aging and barren. And the darkness of he's standing as he's hearing these words in a promised land that's supposed to be his, yet he's looking around, and guess what? It's especially occupied. It'd be like somebody driving you in front of this beautiful mansion and this piece of property, this plantation home, and saying, hey, man, this is yours. Yet you look through the window, and there's a family having dinner at the dinner table. And there's a nice car sitting in the driveway, and you're going, huh? God speaks light into that darkness. Like he named Adam, he gives Abram a new name. Sort of like Abram's going to be, Abraham's going to be a whole new Adam in some ways. Abram is the mediator of the covenant. He gives Abraham commandments. He says, go to a land I will show you. He says, walk before me. He says, be blameless. Do those sound familiar? <laughs> He promises blessings. Your offspring will be as numerous as the stars and the sand and the dust. Just like the other covenants, there's sacrifice. If you were paying attention, man, you saw that there's three-year-olds cut up everywhere. Where are they? A heifer, three years old. A female goat, three years old. A ram, three years old. Only the turtle dove and the young pigeon don't get cut up. There's sacrifice. And then last, of course... There's sign, and it's called, if you got a little boy that's born recently, it's called circumcision. You know what I'm talking about. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's the third covenant. Our distant and not on the pole God is involved in creation, creating his own people with an old man. <laughs> with a barren, aging woman, and with an occupied land. That sounds like God. Taking the unlikely to do a mighty work. Lastly, not lastly, but lastly before we feast, is the Mosaic Covenant. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy chapter 5. <clears throat> As I've been preparing this, uh, this sermon this week, I thought, man, I don't know if our people can hang for this, you know, all these covenants, you know, this stuff sounded so um, untreated for so many of us, myself included. And then God said, no, you press. I didn't hear it audibly. I had, I've never heard him audibly. But I had a strong impression, press on. Because some of you will hang. The worshipers will hang. The consumers, you bailed already. But the worshipers will hang. So come on, worshipers. Let's climb into this. Deuteronomy chapter 5. 
And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. This is Moses speaking to all of Israel after their wilderness experience. They're on Mount Horeb just before they go into the promised land. It says, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Horeb is the Deuteronomy word for Mount Sinai. It says, Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us. We are all of us who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face on the mountain, on the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time. Who's the mediator in that one? While I stood between you and the Lord at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain like he said. And he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And here's the Ten Commandments. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. That's why that thing could just be thrown outside, the king with the, 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 gold, or the green crown. You don't make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in the heaven above or that's on the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who, who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner that's within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother, as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long, and that it may go well with you in the land that your God, Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. Many of the same ingredients. God initiates covenant, in this case, with an especially ordinary people. Among all peoples of the earth, (laughs) He initiates covenant with Israel. He chooses the people that He will be in covenant with. He is the covenantor. He's driving. The same God, the one true God, speaks light into the darkness of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He speaks light into the darkness of 40 years of wandering in in the wilderness. He mediates the covenant through Moses. He commands, that's obvious, (laughs) the Ten Commandments. He promises curses for the disobedient and blessings for the obedient. 
There's a picture of sacrifice because you got all the ingredients there. You got fire, you got smoke, you got glory. And then, of course, there's sign. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8 says, You shall bind these words, this law, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The very words themselves are the sign in this covenant. And that's the fourth covenant. Our distinct, out-of-the-pole God gives us the law. (laughs) The law that's so neglected that according to my Bible is the sweet tutor that leads us to Christ if we will but feast on it. The law that's not completely unnecessary anymore, but that tutor that you spend time with and you go, oh man, there is sin in my life. Oh, Oh, I do need a Savior. Thank you, transcendent God, for interacting with creation and giving us this covenant. Because if it points me to my Jesus, I need it. Thank you for this formerly tired thing that now is so sweet and sublime. While we savor the last covenant, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to ask Steve and the other elders and some of our deacons to go ahead and distribute the elements. Um, just those guys that are distributing need to shift around. Everybody else, don't move. Freeze. What's the, thing, what's the games you play when everybody freezes? Freeze tag. What is it? Do it. No, we're not playing the silent game. Okay, we're going to distribute the elements, and while they're distributing the elements... I'm going to share with you the details of this covenant. So don't disconnect in these next couple minutes. This is the most important part of this sermon. You've been equipped to feast and savor now. So let's do that. Since our God is not grazing in the back 40, and He's not on our pole, Since our God is not on vacation, but rather He's involved in engaging His creation through covenant, I'm hoping that at least in some way, just even through these four covenants that we've engaged already, that maybe you're seeing the covenant is actually pretty sweet. (laughs) It's not a yawner. It's beautiful what these things have in common. These covenants are wonderful. But as awesome as these covenants are, these ones that we've looked at, the Adamic, the Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, as sweet as they are, even as sweet as this last one is, that's the tutor that leads us to Christ, even taken cumulatively, they don't compare to the last one. Even taken together, they don't come close to touching the last one. This last one is the best one. This last one is the supreme covenant. This last one is the superlative covenant. This one is sublime. This last covenant is the new covenant given in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, as you're receiving these elements as they're passed out, don't take them yet. Just hold them. You're going to get a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice and just hold them because we're going to come to them in a minute. And let me tell you, too, if you're not believing on Christ as your Savior and Lord, don't take them. These are for those that are in fellowship with Christ. Take one if you're in fellowship with Him. You'll see in a moment why we're doing this right now. 
Just like the other covenants, the new covenant is a covenant where God initiates the covenant with an ordinary people. God gathers people from the four winds over the ages. Ordinary folk, just like this among all people sort of people. Israel. God is the covenantor. God is in the driver's seat. Galatians 4.4 says, In the fullness of time, God sent His Son. You can build the highest tower you want. You can't get to Him. You could be the best guy in the world. You can't get to Him. For no one is righteous. No, not one. God is the covenanter. He comes to us. Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. Jesus says, I have come to find and gather the lost sheep. Just like the other covenants, there's a mediator. And the mediator of this covenant is our Christ. Our Christ mediates a whole new covenant. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22 says, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, that's the Mosaic, as the covenant he mediates is better. He's better than Moses. And this new sublime covenant of his is better than Moses' covenant. He's better since it was enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. On that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the covenant we just read about. This passage is talking about a new and improved For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed them no concern, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. They gathered from the four winds. Every nation will be represented. From the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. It says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, says, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Man, Abel wasn't innocent, wasn't he? But as innocent as he was, his blood does not compare to the true innocent. His blood does not save. That's the picture of our mediator in this new covenant. Just like in the other situations where he speaks light into darkness, it's the same as true as here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, it says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. Remember that? The first covenant? The same God that said, let there be light, has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This covenant is the same in character. (laughs) But in substance, it's sublime. 
And it's final. And it's perfect. He speaks light into darkness. Just like the other covenants, their sacrifice. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In this new and perfect and sublime and complete covenant, the final covenant, Christ, our Passover lamb, was crucified. Just like the other covenants that have command, there's command in the new covenant. And that new command is the double love command. The Pharisees trying to stump Jesus said, what's, what's the best commandment? And he responded with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. See, there's command in this covenant. And there's blessings in this covenant. Those blessings, just a few pictures. John 10, 10, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. There's blessings in this covenant of abundant life. There's blessings in this covenant that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. There's blessings in this covenant is that in the midst of cancer, in the midst of job loss, in the midst of heartache, in the midst of suffering, you can have a peace that passes understanding. There are blessings in this covenant. And there's curses in this covenant. John 15, the non-fruit-bearing vines are thrown into the fire. Just like the other covenants had a cultural mandate of being fruitful and multiplying, this covenant too has a cultural mandate. It goes something like this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's our cultural mandate. Just like some of these other covenants where these guys got a new name, like Adam got a name, like Abram got a new name, like Saul got a new name, Paul, like Simon got a new name, Peter, like your wife took your name when she entered into covenant, we too get a good name, a new name. According to Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, he made a promise to the church at Pergamum, to those who persevere, you'll get a white stone with a new name written on it. We get a whole new name. It's appropriate since we're a whole new creature. And then lastly, just like the other covenants, there's a sign. The sign in this covenant is the thing that you're holding in your hand. Just like the other covenants have a sign, the heavenly lights the relaxed bow oriented away from the earth, thankfully. Circumcision, the law itself, the phylacteries. The sign of this covenant is the very thing that we're about to take. Listen to what Jesus says. Luke chapter 22, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread. Now take your bread. Covenant sharers. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's take and drink. We're going to worship in song just for a moment. And what I want to ask you to do, we're about to sing. Let me encourage you to, you might be closing your Bibles. You might be kind of getting ready to go. Let's not rush out of this moment. This is the sweetest part of our time together this morning. God has interacted, this out of the pole God has interacted with creation over the ages through covenant. And the thing that we just put into our mouths is a picture of the most incredible, perfect, complete, and final covenant that has ever existed or will ever exist. Listen to the words of this song. If you know the words to this song, sing them. If you don't know them, engage them. Listen to what we're singing. Sin that held him there 
with all the wailing. Man, this time a celebration. <laughs> Listen, we're transitioning to a special part of our, our service. This, we do this once a year where we uh, gather and renew our covenant to each other. Man, I know what membership has been reduced to. Man, I know it. I've been on the receiving end of it. I've participated in it where it's just kind of a piece of paper and it's a head count. How many we got today? Ooh, man. And that's not what membership is. Membership is the people of God covenanting with each other. It's not a new covenant. We already have a new covenant. It's operating within that covenant. It's being intentional as the people of God saying, man, I want to engage this wonderfully distinct God and His people. If it matters to His people, if He's operated by covenant, then, man, it's got to be God-honoring for us to covenant with each other, to be serious about what we're doing. I realized this morning, man, that y'all may have a difficult time with some, with some of what you heard. I know it was a beef-eater sermon. I know it was. It was a beef-preacher sermon. I realize it might be difficult to digest, but I want you to appreciate that what you've heard about covenant, the, ti- the title of this message this morning was Covenants Thicker Than Blood. I want you to appreciate that what we've talked about this morning, where God, this transcendent, awesome God that's not on vacation, but in fact is personal and is engaging creation through covenant, that this incredible God, this graceful God, is engaging us in a way that is thicker than blood. I want you to appreciate and remember that we're not of the same essence, us and God. But this covenant that He enters into us, with us makes us closer than blood. The picture of that is when two 
people marry a man and a woman. They break the bond, which I'm convinced is one of the most powerful bonds known to man between parent and child, where a man and woman leave and cleave their blood relationships and covenant with each other, and they become a union. That's the picture of covenant. That's the picture of what we're doing as the people of God. In many ways, when the people of God covenant with each other and walk together as part of this new covenant, we're closer than blood relatives. (laughs) It's not family first. And then church, it's church embedded within family. That's the true union. The true picture of integrity. The true picture of wholeness. It's only when you understand covenant that way that you can understand how Jesus could say in the cost of discipleship, the cost of following me, is you must hate father, mother, brother, sister. You've got to be ready to walk away from blood relationships to enter into the covenant relationship with me. That's how thick covenant is. So this day is a special day where God's people renew our covenant with each other. I, I realize if you're here for the first time, <clears throat> you might think, man, these guys kind of don't have the typical routine. And I hope more than anything, seeing kind of the typical, not the typical schedule, you know, even maybe not the typical noise level. <laughs> I hope more than anything, you see that in the, among this people, church is not an activity. <laughs> If church is just an activity for you, if it's just an entry in your day timer, then what you've heard today is like, man, that's ridiculous. But what you've got to appreciate is I didn't make it up. It's all in here, all over the place. The people of God are not about an activity. We have an identity. It's only when you see the people of God as an identity that you can understand covenant, that you can understand what it means to be part of a people. (laughs) And that's what we're doing today, is celebrating that covenant. Scott has a couple more songs prepared this morning. We're going to worship in song. And as we do that, I ask you, as the Lord leads you, as the Lord leads you to follow me and my family and the elders and their families and dropping our cards up here as just kind of a symbol, this may be our little sign of our little miniature covenant within a covenant where these families are committing to be members of one another and committing to walk together. Let's worship in song.